Hello and welcome back once again to the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. This is episode 165. John and Wendy talk to Gary Cookson. I'm your host, John. And I'm Wendy. How are you today, John? Wendy, I'm well, and we are well into our month of United Kingdom guests. Yes. However, I have something for our, our U.S. compatriots that I wanted to mention. On May 6th, I'm going to be partnering with our pals at Paycor again for another Ask the Expert webinar. Apparently, I'm the expert, Wendy, which is <laughs> can be quite a surprise. We think the world of Paycor and have had such a good time working yeah. with them over the last year plus. And some of you may remember I did an Ask the Expert webinar with them back in the fall, and it went really well. Apparently, it was one of their biggest attended, which thank you to the HR Social Hour community for, for I know many of you were, attended that session. This one on the 6th is going to be, again, similarly focused with manufacturing and construction. And hey, in Paycor's really cool way, if you provide a question that we answer and that they use in the line of things that will come to me, you are eligible for a $25 Uber Eats gift card if they use your question. I'm going to include the link in the show notes. I hope those of you that in our space will check it out, uh, share it. If you know somebody that works in manufacturing construction that maybe has some questions, we're going to try to focus more now that we're coming out of as best we can coming out of COVID, talking more about talent development and succession and those those types of things. That's that's what we want to talk about in there, alternative hiring methods and what have you. Really, really excited about it. May 6th, it'll be at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes to register. And again, even if you don't want to come, you can still submit a question and get a, get a gift card. So exactly. hope, hope everybody will check that out. Yeah, definitely. Mark your calendars. May's going to be busy. It's going to be awesome. I love it. We have to say this at the front because this has never (laughs) happened before. Some of you may be looking at the episode title and saying, wait a minute, didn't you just talk to somebody named Cookson? And we did. We had Amanda and Simon on last week. In the three plus years we've done this, I I think it's safe to say, Wendy, we've never had people with the same last names come on back to back. No. Mm -mm, no. So we want to make sure that a couple things. First of all, Gary's his own person. We're going to have a great conversation with him. We also want to be clear that not everybody in the UK has the last name Cookson. I think that's apparent based on what we had. But hey, we did ask Amanda and Simon, and Simon said, hey, you never know, maybe way back somewhere based on location, but don't think we are. Gary said more of the same, but we are really excited that Agree was able to join us today. So let's make the introduction and we'll get started. Yes. So excited to welcome Gary to the show. He is the father of four, husband of one, and running a successful business, Epic, in his spare time. He is an expert in workplace performance with extensive experience in leading and directing HR, OD, and L&D functions. He is authentic, honest, knowledgeable, communicative, and people-focused with a broad and deep range of skills and experience. He is a leading expert in the design and delivery of online and virtual training programs. An inspiring and entertaining keynote speaker and trainer on on a range of leadership and HR issues, Gary is also recognized in HR Most Influential, Movers and Shakers 2019, and an HRD Connect Thought Leader. Gary, welcome to the show. Our first question, as always, what is in your glass? Thanks, Wendy. Thanks, John. Today in my glass, I've got a glass of wine. I should probably say that it is evening in the UK whereas we're recording this. My kids are in bed and it's perfectly okay for me to be drinking alcohol at this time of the day. Love it. Yeah, we're pulling the curtain yeah. back. It is late afternoon yep. in the States. It may be, may be appropriate. I don't know, Wendy, I don't know what you're up to. I'm not, but not yet. Uh, some of these other sessions not have yet. been early morning, so not so much. <laughs> Gary, we know what you're doing now. How in the world though, did you get your start in human resources? 
purely by accident, John. Um, I don't think anybody goes through school, college, university with a clear idea of what they want to do and, and that idea being human resources. No careers advisor ever said to me, you know the career for you? HR. No one ever said that to me. <laughs> and I didn't want to be in HR when I was growing up. I think we might get on to some of that later on, but I, I just fell into it. I was a, trained as a school teacher, high school teacher, and I taught history. I really enjoyed it, or I enjoyed the subject, I enjoyed teaching, I enjoyed imparting my knowledge, helping people to learn, things like that. The only thing I didn't like was teenage children. If you've got teenage children or if, or if you know them, then you know exactly why I don't teach anymore. And also perhaps, I mean, it's a shame that this is just audio only, you won't see me, but you'll know exactly why I've got no hair anymore as well. It fell out around the time I was teaching teenage children. And I was, I always thought I was pretty good at teaching. But when you're in front of a class of, say, 30, 15, 16-year-olds who are sat there with their arms folded and they don't want to be there and they don't want you to teach them and they really hate you and despise you, then, you know, it's really hard. And, and most of those kids were bigger than me, and that was just the girls. And it wasn't a really nice experience being being in the classroom. So I got out of teaching and decided to try my hand in the corporate world. And I moved back in with my parents at that point, and they were pretty much pushing me out the door, trying to get me any job anywhere. And somehow I got a job in a nearby large multinational corporation, uh, which was ICI, and that, that was present in, in the US as well, but it's no longer with us. And I was in a training role in that, that organization, L&D role, and I was brought in because I had a teaching background. I was good at standing up and talking to people, designing sessions, and they brought me in to do some of that for their team. Then all of a sudden, I moved sideways into HR. Uh, I was doing another L&D role in a different organization, and this organization had an outsourced HR department that weren't very good. Every time a manager would go to the outsourced HR department, they would get the answer they didn't want. And they'd go to me and they'd say to me, could you give me a different response? And I would because I was there, I was on site. They would ask me these questions. And then one day the chief exec called me into his office and he said, we're going to get rid of the, the outsourced HR department because it isn't working. It isn't the model for us. We don't like the way that's set up. Uh, how would you fancy being our new head of human resources? And I sat there and I thought, hmm, yeah, okay. And I didn't really think it through. And that's how I got into HR, purely by accident. <laughs> after you left corporate HR, after many years, you launched Epic in 2017. Tell us a little bit about Epic and what led you to go out on your own. Well, it was a long time coming. It, it took it took perhaps a decade of of building up the courage to do it and to leave the corporate world. There was a couple of flashpoints towards the end that really set me down that path. And in essence, it all boils down to work-life balance and the need to have more flexibility in the way I work, the type of work I do, when and where I do it and who I do it with. And ultimately, that was why I did it. There were a lot of things going on in my last corporate role that I didn't really like in terms of it was very rigid. It was a nine-to-five job. You could only do your job at one specific location. You couldn't even get your emails on your phone. There was no remote working. I had to work away. I had a young and growing family, and it was really tricky. There was a lengthy commute into the office, and I was getting into the office angry, really angry by the time I even got through the door in the office. And I wasn't being myself. And when I got home, I was still angry because the job wasn't great. 
the people weren't great, the culture wasn't really meshing with me. And then there were all these restrictions in the job that I really couldn't get my head around. And then two things happened in my personal life that really changed my view on this. One was that my wife got pregnant with what was what became our fourth child. And she was really sick in the early days. And, and that happens to my wife when she gets pregnant. And it does settle down. But in the early few months, I needed to be at home. I needed to be able to do school runs, cook meals, because she wasn't capable of doing any of those things. And I couldn't because of my job. And that was tearing me in two. And the other thing that happened at the same time was that my mum got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which a few years later killed her. But this was the early stage of this. And she was going through chemotherapy and not able to help us out. She was my backup person for doing the school runs and helping out with meals. And all of a sudden, she wasn't there either. And I couldn't take her to the hospital. And I couldn't support my dad. And I couldn't support my wife. And and all these things came to a head. I told my my manager, who was the, the chief people officer in that job, about the struggles I was having with this. And she said to me, well, she said, well, my mother's got cancer and, and I just get on with life and I, I managed to do the job. Why can't you? And I wasn't sure really what to say to that. I think everybody's different and there was no empathy shown to me there. And she was told or she told me that I was a man, I was a senior leader and I should would the effect of grow a pair. And I, I didn't like that. And then I was speaking at the CIPD conference. The CIPD is the UK's version of SHRM. And I was speaking at their annual conference in 2017. And my speech was on the subject of flexible working and how HR can lead by example. And I listened to myself speak and I thought, you actual hypocrite, you're telling these HR professionals what they should do, but you're not doing it yourself. You're not walking the walk. I went back into work the very next day. By the end of that day, I'd left that job and left the organization, set up Epic. And Epic is a performance improvement consultancy. It's a bit of a vague title, but it's a, it's a bit of a vague thing that I do. I help anything in organizations that is designed to improve performance. A lot of the time that's L&D and coaching, leadership development. Sometimes that is improving the way people manage people and how they, they organize their HR teams and helping the HR teams become better at what they do. It can be absolutely anything as long as the net result is an improvement in performance for either individuals or the organization. So that's what I do. And I've been doing it now for three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years. And I've not regretted it once. I make a lot of mistakes, but one of the best things I ever did was set up this company because it gives me control. I still have bad days. I have a lot of good days too, and I make loads of mistakes, but they're my mistakes now, and they're my bad days, and I'm quite happy with that. Gary, let's talk a bit more about Epic and what you're doing when it comes to performance and, and coaching and working with folks. What do you see as the number one issue that your clients and, and their workforces from an HR, OD, you know, leadership perspective, what's the biggest thing that you're really seeing them have issues with? How, how are you going about to solve those problems? And I think the answer to this, John, won't surprise you. And it's how do we cope with the impact of COVID and lockdowns and remote working on the workforce and the, and the workplace in the future? Do we stay fully remote? Do we go fully back to the office? Do we have some hybrid model? And if we have a, a hybrid model, 
And it looks like in, in the UK, at least, many organizations are going to adopt that and likely in the US too. What does that mean for the way we need to engage people, develop people, manage that talent, acquire talent, build teams? And how do we do that? How does the culture need to change? How does the organizational system need to change? And that's the biggest thing that a lot of my clients are wrestling with. And that's the things that I try to help them with and try to get them to understand some of the changes, what works, what doesn't, how they need to change and flow things around in the future. That's the biggest thing for me this last 12 months and, well, at least the next 12, I would say. We talked a little bit before we started recording. It sounds like there's been some movement in the UK in the last little bit in terms of some reopenings and, and things improving. So yeah. it sounds like it's going to really continue to be how do you make these adjusted schedules or realities if the ability is there. Today, as we're recording, there's been some easing of restrictions in the UK. We've been able to go to pubs, restaurants, things like that. A lot of people going back to work who've been forced to work remotely as of today. And that's only going in one direction. It's not going to go backwards. So many organizations are now starting to reopen and starting to think through. For the last 12 months, they've been closed more often than they've been open. They've been away from the workplace more often than they've been in it. That's now going to change the next 12 months. Now is the time to reset that culture. Now is the time to really think about what does this really mean? If we don't make the changes now, when could we ever? So it's some big questions to be wrestled with, at least in the UK at the moment, where we are with the pandemic. Not just there. <laughs> I, think there. I think Wendy and I yeah. can, can speak to the fact that it's prevalent. Everybody that we talk to, and we're all dealing with, Yeah, a lot of us are dealing with similar situations. And what is going to change permanently because of what's transpired. And it's, it's really tricky. I mean, and a lot of my clients are very small organizations. And if you, if you were to go into a large organization, and I've got some large clients and, and so, so do you, large organizations are much more set up from an infrastructure perspective to deal with some of the things they've got going on. And they've got the professional help inside and outside the organization that they probably need to make that work. The smaller organizations, much less so. A lot of the organizations in the UK are very small to medium-sized organizations. You're talking a couple of hundred people at most and often much less than that. And they don't really have access to the types of support and the thinking and the research that I think they really need to change how they work. So I think the large organizations are going to be absolutely fine. It's the smaller ones that I worry about. You've talked about how you've been out and speaking for a while. So how did you get started as a speaker and uh, any upcoming engagements that we can share? Yeah, again, it was pretty much by accident getting started as a speaker. In in one of my roles, the one where the chief exec had said, you fancy being our head of human resources, I stayed in that job for 12 years. And as you, you build up kind of momentum and stories behind you and connections, and I was starting to share locally amongst people doing similar work, case studies, examples of good work I was doing, things that were going well for us, lessons learned, big projects, transformational work. And people were interested in it. One thing leads to another and you start to get invited to speak at very small local events. And then eventually you get on a a national platform. It was a really, really slow burn though. To get regular speaking work probably took me six, seven, eight years to get anything that I would call regular. In the early years, there was maybe one a year, if that. By about year seven, year eight, I was getting you know maybe double figures worth of speaking bookings each year. Last year, really different. 
I had quite a few in the early months of last year before the pandemic hit, quite a few, including quite a few that were right on the cusp of the pandemic really taking hold, where people were wearing masks at the event and everybody was saying, should we run this? Should we be here? And then a couple of days later, everything had closed down. So that was a real surreal experience. What happened at that point is all the speaking engagements I had in the second quarter of the year either got cancelled or postponed and pushed back or changed to being virtual speaking events. That was okay. Some of them have not been rearranged. Some of them are rearranged for later this year. And then, then the virtual ones change. And I don't mind speaking virtually to people. I do it, well, everybody does it now all the time. But I don't mind doing that. But I, I do miss the buzz of being in front of a large crowd and being able to see everybody and hear everybody. And virtually, you know they're there, and you do get engagement, you get reactions from people. But there's nothing quite like telling a joke and hearing people laugh. And you don't get that virtually. You have to imagine they are, but you don't know. So I do miss it, and I'm really looking forward to the return later this year of some large-scale conferences. And I've got a few irons in the fire to help with that. But everybody's a bit cagey about whether these events are going to take place. It's provisional. It might happen if the pandemic gets to the point that we want it to, then it will. I'm holding out no great hopes that these will take place. They might, they, they might not. But a lot of the things I speak about are often just my own thoughts, my own examples, my own theories, my own models, my own ways of thinking about the, the way I interpret the world and so on. I do a lot of speaking that is very short and snappy, very rare that I'll speak for half an hour or more. A lot of my stuff is 5, 10, 15 minutes, then stop, do something else, and then come back, do 5, 10, 15 minutes. And one of the things that, that I tend to be known for in the UK, at least, is rhyming. I tend to rhyme my speech and deliver it as a poem. And that's something I'm I'm very well known for in the UK. And it's the prime reason I get booked because I can turn almost any topic into a poem and deliver it in rhyming couplets for 15 minutes uh, at a shop. So I tend to get booked for that. Sometimes a comedy value and sometimes not, but tends to go across really well when, when people don't know that you're about to rhyme to them. And then you do. And when you see people's faces, the kind of dawning realisation what's happening across their faces, I love that. But again, you don't get that virtually. You and Steve Brown. Steve writes those, you know, he'll write those lyrics to yeah. song, you know, he'll write eight lyrics. That's, a, that's fantastic. He does. He's a, he's a lovely that. bloke, Steve. And I, <laughs> the, the creativity that he's got in doing that, I, I really do respect him and admire him for that. But And he does it so regularly as well. So his, his output far outstrips mine and if if i'm going to do one for a five minute speech it can take me a month to write it steve's doing it once a week every week for years the man's a machine there's something to be said for doing 15 minute sessions in couplets that i don't want to necessarily think that hard on it i give you a lot of credit for that one of the things we've been doing over the last many months gary is we have started outsourcing questions to some previous guests and as we talked about we had some folks uh, last week with the same Surname, uh, Simon Cooks, and asks, what yeah. does being human at work mean to you? 
Okay, it's a great question from somebody who you rightly stress isn't a relation of mine. I do have a cousin called Simon Cookson, but that's not the same person. I should probably recommend my, my brother's in talent acquisition and I should probably recommend that you speak to him. If you just wanted a third Cookson, you could have my brother <laughs> and you might as well then rename this show perhaps. But great question from Simon. What does being human at work mean to you? It's something I, I've always thought is a really important principle. It's about bringing your whole self to work. It's about being transparent, being in touch with yours and others' emotions, showing compassion, showing empathy. And it's about being there for people. And as I say, bringing your whole self to work means that there isn't a great deal of difference when you see me between who I am at home and who I am at work. The two are the same thing. And I take the same view on, say, social media, for example. If you, if anybody's familiar with the output that I put on social media, you see everything from me. You see the HR tweets and the things I share on LinkedIn. And you see pictures of my kids. And you see things that I'm having for my evening meal. And you see me ranting and raving about people not wearing masks. And you see all kinds of things going on. And that's being human. We are human and we shouldn't forget that so is everybody else. We've all got emotions and we shouldn't try and hide them away. Gary, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of our show, the Half Hour Question Connection. We already know you didn't dream of being in HR when you were a child. So what career did you dream of having? I had two careers that I've still not given up hope of doing. Number one was to be a footballer, soccer player, to play for Manchester United. It's my team. And I still think that I that I could. And number two was to be a professional wrestler. I would have been in what was WWF, now WWE. I would have been a professional wrestler. And I've still not given up hope of that one. I, I still reckon I could make it. Carrie, we're going to talk offline about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten back into professional wrestling over COVID, and it's, I, it's, I made up with it. Who's one person you've gained your network in the last year that you think more people should know? That's a really hard question because – my network's really large, and I think it's really difficult, maybe even unfair, to try and single out one person. I'm going to hack this question and come at it in a different way. There is one group of people that have come into my network the last year, and that's the what we call the HR pub quiz community. And you mentioned Steve Brown earlier on. Steve's in that, and a few other people like Sharon, who's been on the podcast with you before, and a few other people who have been with you as well. And the HR pub quiz community is every Saturday evening in the UK, so late afternoon in the, in the US, a group of about 15, 20 HR professionals come together and do a pub quiz for an hour. And lots of laughs and jokes and alcohol and swearing and all kinds of things goes on. And at the same time, there's a quiz. And it's a really good way to end the week for me and my wife and seemingly everybody else too. And then there's a wider group of people who take part in a group chat called HR Pub Quiz as well. Not everybody can make the Saturday slot, but still want to be part of the community. And that community is a, a non-stop, closed community of people asking for help, people sharing advice, people empathizing with each other and the situations they're involved in, people helping each other out, real supportive community. And it's something that I didn't realize I needed in my life until it came along. And now if you took it away, I'd fight really hard to keep it. So the HR Pub Quiz community, you can search it on Twitter, hashtag HR Pub Quiz, is a really good and welcoming community. 
we're always open for new people coming along. If you fancy coming to the quiz, that's brilliant. If you just fancy being in the chat, that's equally brilliant. And you'd be welcome with open arms. So if anybody's listening to this and wants to join in, feel free. We'd love to have you. Love it. Gary, how do you maintain balance? Not very well, usually, Wendy, if I'm honest. I think the way I, I try to look at balance is it can't judge balance. I'm assuming you're talking about work-life balance. You can't judge it on the evidence of one day. You can't judge it on the evidence of one week, even a month. And I might even go so far as to say that you judge it on the basis of a year is not enough evidence to say whether you've got balance. Balance is something that ebbs and flows. And the only way you can really judge it is when you look back at your life when it's near its end. And I hope for me, that's 50, 60 years away. But when I look back and do I say, did I get that balance? I want to be able to say yes. And there's daily decisions I have to make that's going to get me to that point. But I don't take any day in isolation, say, well, I messed that one up or I got that one great today. Because I know that there's always ups and downs, always peaks and troughs. And I take it over a much longer period of time. And what I try to do is divide my day into manageable chunks and make sure that I spend as much time as I can with each of the various, what I might call, stakeholders in my life. So I've got my clients and the people in my business and I've got my family and my friends and my wider network. And I try to give each what I feel is proportionate attention so that I get something like balance. But if you ask me at any given day, I'm not perfect. I make tons of mistakes. I make far more mistakes than I get right. But that's okay because I learn from each one. And I really struggle sometimes with the peaks and troughs of work and how they impact family life. And then the peaks and troughs of family life and how that impacts work. And I think life's one big washing machine full of things going round and round all the time. And you can never get it right on any given day. I have what I call the perfect day. And that's one of my speeches, by the way, one of those rhymes that I told you about, the perfect day, where I, I outline what my perfect day would look like. But we never actually get it. But you can get close to it. And in that speech called The Perfect Day, I talk about if I can get enough of that perfect day without getting everything in that perfect day, that could sustain me emotionally, energy-wise, for weeks, absolute weeks, if I get enough of it. But I know that I'll never get it all. There is no such thing as the perfect day. But if I can get 80, 85% of it, I know I'm onto a winner. So I don't try for perfect balance to answer your question, Wendy, but I try for enough balance that I can get through to the next day and the next week and the next year. And hopefully in 60 years when I die, I can look back and say, yeah, I got it right more often than I got wrong. Gary, how do you enjoy giving back to the HR community? Uh, lots of different ways. We've talked about my speaking already. I, I really enjoy speaking in front of groups of people and, and helping people and then talking to people after the speech. I write a lot as well. And, and some of the people listening to this will have come across my blogs. And I also curate the Advent blog series every December, which lots of HR professionals from across the world contribute to. So I, I write a lot, I share a lot, I contribute to journals and magazines. I like sharing stuff with people and I like using my platform to help people do greater things, to, to either get back into work if they're struggling or to get answers to questions if they need advice on things or to connect people with each other. So I enjoy using the platform I've got. I've got a relatively big social media reach 
And that's not for me. That's for everybody else. It's a platform for other people to use what I've built to tap into ideas, tap into anything else. So I do all of those things. I connect people. What is your favorite movie? Uh, again, I'm going to hack this question and give you a trilogy. It's the, it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was watching Return of the King just last night. I'm just blown away by the Lord of the Rings movies and the, the cinematography in it and the, the direction in it from Peter Jackson. It's just absolutely immense. How about the first concert you attended? R.E.M. And R.E.M. came and did a stadium tour when I was at university. And they came to the town where I was at university, so where I was staying, purely by chance. If they'd been going anywhere else, I might not have been to see them, but they were there on my doorstep. Big stadium tour. And R.E.M. were my favourite band. And it was brilliant. It was 1995 or, or 96, 95, I think, 1995. So I'd have been 20. And it was a glorious hot summer's day really hot day middle of summer and the day just seemed to last forever the concert was maybe only two and a half hours rem set was an even smaller part of that but the day just seemed to go on forever it was the longest day of my life but it was one of one of the best days and there were some other bands who supported rem that from a uk perspective became really big bands but at the time, very few people had heard of them. Very few people were, were into them. And later on, they could they did do stadium tours in their own right. But I saw them when they were a support act. So one of those bands was Oasis. And you know many, many people in the UK will know Oasis. Very big in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I saw them when they were a support to REM. And that was really good before they were famous. And then there were other bands that were famous 80s bands supporting like the Beautiful South as well. And they were on their way out at that point. So there was bands going on the way up, there was bands on the way down, and then there was REM who were kind of pull it all together. And it was brilliant to see them play stadiums. Really, really good. What was the last show you binge-watched? The last show I binge-watched was a, a UK police and crime drama called Line of Duty. And it's currently on Series 6 in the UK. And that started a couple of weeks ago. And prior to Series 6 starting... My wife and I realized that such a complicated program, we couldn't remember the first five series in enough detail to feel confident starting to watch series six. So we rewatched them all and it took us about two weeks to watch them all. And we, we got up to the right point and now we've started on series six. So we're really up to date about it. Really complicated show, but really interesting if, if you like your police and crime dramas. Gary, what's a hobby or a thing you really like to do that may surprise people? I'm going to give you two again. I'm cheating with all these questions, John and Wendy. And they're both sports. I do two sports in my, my spare time. And one, everybody will know. And the other one, certainly in the US, nobody will have ever heard of it. Uh, the one that everybody will know is triathlons. I'm a triathlete. I compete in Olympic distance triathlons, do about half a dozen every summer. Didn't do many last summer because of COVID, but they're all starting up again this year. That takes a lot of discipline and training and time to do stuff. So I was telling John earlier on that I went for a swim today. I've not been able to swim since December. and I've not been out on my bike since October. So I'm really keen now. It's the start of the triathlon season, middle of April, as we're recording this. And the summer's looking good from a triathlon perspective. 
and hopefully I'm in the right physical shape for it. But I love triathlons because you're on your own. You're competing against the clock and your own previous times. You're not really competing against anybody else unless you are actually in the Olympics where, yes, you are. But I'm not. I'm 45. I'm never going to make the Olympics. So I'm competing against the runner in my head. And that really motivates me to beat myself, to beat my own times, to get myself through it. Uh, They're quite addictive. And the other sport that I do is uh, what's called crown green bowls. And in the US, nobody will have heard of that. And even in the UK, it's a very obscure sport based in the northern part of England. And you might know it as lawn bowls, but even that isn't quite the same sport. It's a variant of it. And I'm not going to go into the details of the, the way it varies from it. It's about as different from what you understand as lawn bowls as soccer might be from American football, in that they both take place on a, a pitch with a ball. That's about as close as the comparisons come. And Crown Green Bowls is in my family and always has been. And it's popularised in the UK as a sport for old men because it doesn't take much physical exertion to do it. It's a game that takes place up here in your head, and it's a game that requires a bit of kind of eye-hand coordination and judgment. But it's a really interesting game to play, and I've played it since I was three, four years of age, and my entire family play it. We're quite a famous family in the sport. Hardly anybody knows that outside of the sport. So you're sat there listening, and you're thinking, I've never heard of this sport. 99% of your listeners will also be not knowing what this sport is. But trust me, it's a good one. There's going to be an uptick in searches for it now. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Gary, what do you believe is the biggest misconception people have about the United Kingdom? I think there's, there's quite a few misconceptions that people might have about the UK. And I'll be really interested because I know you're, you're recording with a lot of British guests over the next month or so to see whether we all come up with the same things or whether these things are just in my head. So I'll be really interested to listen to what's coming up. I think we, we've had a, a death in the royal family in the last couple of days, as many of you will know. Looking at the UK from outside, I think the world media portrays the UK as ardent royalists and that the country is probably in mourning at the moment with the death of Prince Philip. And he was a very well-respected man, and lots of people are ardent royalists. But I would say the nation is split pretty much 50-50. There's as many people don't like the royal family and couldn't stand Prince Philip as love them and love the man. And I don't think that's fully appreciated from outside. And I think there's a there's a perception that we're all in favour of the royal family, and, and that's definitely not the case. The other thing that I think is a misconception is that we're all in favour of the United Kingdom, and we're simply not. I am, personally, but the, I'm probably in a minority. A lot of people in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, in Wales, don't want to be part of the United Kingdom. Even a lot of people in England don't want those countries to be part of the United Kingdom. We're far from being a United Kingdom despite maybe how the world's media portrays us. There's a lot of divisions, a lot of cultural dissonance in the UK at the moment and and often has been for the last few decades. I don't think that's portrayed to the outside world as much. So it's interesting being on the inside when you see all of that kind of stuff. People will often say the UK is England. It's not. It's the biggest country in the UK, but it's one of only four. And People often think that everybody lives in London or near to London from outside the UK. And we don't. I'm nowhere near London. I don't want to live anywhere near London. I'd be perfectly happy if I never went to London again in my life. 
and but everything's London centric. Even in the UK, it's London centric, and that I think is a misconception. There's some great work, great people goes on outside of London, and many of the guests on your podcasts are outside London too. I can't let you cheat on this one because you just get one. All right, but if you were to ask the next guests of the show one question, what would it be? I was asked a question today by somebody. It was in a coaching conversation, and it was a question that made me stop and think. So I'm going to give that question to the next person. I don't know who that is, and maybe you'll tell me after this. If somebody world-class came to take over your life and work, what would be the first thing that they would do? And what's stopping you doing that now? Again, I'm really glad we don't answer these questions. I can't thank you enough for doing this. I want to thank Sharon Green for making the connection here. Really appreciate your time and sharing about, about you and your and your background. I'm going to go Google this style of bowling, lawn bowling. Some of our guests or some of our listeners rather may not know, didn't know you before now that want to get connected. Best way for them to reach you out there. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. So if you search Gary Cookson on LinkedIn, you'll be able to find me. But you more often find me on Twitter, which is at Gary underscore Cookson. And I'm not hard to find on either of those platforms. We'll have both those in the show notes. And then, Wendy, how about you? Best way for listeners to find you out there? Uh, best way is on my blog, mydailyjourney.com. Daily is D as in dog, A-I-L-E-Y. And, of course, the second and fourth Sunday of each month, you will find me on Twitter, 7 p.m. Eastern time as part of our twice-monthly Twitter chat. How about you, John? Quick reminder, again, it'll be in the show notes. For those of you in the construction and manufacturing space, Join me on May 6, 11 a.m. for the webinar I'm going to be doing with our pals at Paycor. Submit a question. If you're not in those industries, submit a question. If we use it, $25 Uber Eats card. But otherwise, johntherman.com for all things John Thurman. And for the show, hrsocialhourpodcast.podbean.com. Listen, share, follow. That's all we ask. International listeners, we've had an entire month of international guests. I think Gary would tell you it's fairly painless. We'd love for you to take part two. Contact us. Let's get those conversations going to get you on the show. Gary, again, appreciate you being with us. So for the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast, I'm John. And I'm Wendy. And as always, be sure to connect. Give back and network. network. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. 